We are in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. We're carrying on <clears throat> in this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be reading in, from verses 25 through 34. This is what it says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat what you, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor weep nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for what he invites us into, what he teaches us in this passage. Lord, we know that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So this morning, would we experience the freedom you want for us to live with, this carefreeness that you want for us? Open our eyes, our hearts. Would we be willing and courageous to trust you with our lives and all that we need. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The very first word that we read here in verse 25 is therefore. And one of the things you always got to ask when you see those, what's it there for? What's it there for? What did Jesus say that leads him to say, therefore, do not worry? Last week, we talked about what he said. Last week we talked about how Jesus is creating a generous people, people who aren't stingy, but generous with all that they have. And if you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to listen to it because it's really a continuation of today's message. Last week's was really called a generous people, and today's is a carefree people, but they go together. So if you missed it, make sure you listen to it. It'll kind of give you a bit of understanding of what we're going through here. But just as a quick summary, in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24... Jesus uses three images to call his people to be generous. The first one he talks about is these two treasures, right, on earth or in heaven, not to store up their stuff on earth uh, as, if it, as if that will provide this lasting sense of satisfaction or security, but instead store up treasures in heaven where they do last. Seek things that are eternal, like the love of God. God's the greatest treasure you could have in life. Second image he uses is these two eyes, a greedy eye or a generous eye. Greed is sneaky, and it blinds us to the extent of our own greed, and it blinds us to opportunities to give around us. A greedy eye is a sick eye, an unhealthy eye. Light can't enter it, nor can it come through it. And a generous eye, though, will look for opportunities to give. 
to use what you have to serve, love, and encourage others. Generosity with those around you and those in need is a sign that God is at work in your life. And then he uses this image of two masters, God or money. And Jesus says you can't serve both. You've got to pick one. Who will have ultimate say in your life? See, when you choose Jesus as master, those questions of how much should I give shift to what did he give? And his giving was sacrificial. And so that becomes the measure of your generosity. Does it cost me? If it doesn't cost me anything, it makes no difference in my life, then there's no discipleship. But disciples have chosen him. They've chosen him as the master. They've chosen to be generous with all they have. They've chosen not to seek security in the things that we can store up here on earth because those things never last as long or as secure as you think. And seeking things instead that are eternal. So in light of all of that, it makes sense why Jesus says, therefore, in light of your choice you're making to trust him, to follow him, to hold all your stuff with an open hand, don't be anxious. That's actually a really good word. Don't be anxious. Let me relieve you of your concerns. Jesus is going to wage an all-out war against worrying about anxiety. Worry and anxiety are mentioned six times in this brief little passage. In fact, if you notice, he commands us three times not to worry. At the very beginning, don't be anxious about your life. In the middle, so don't be anxious. Don't you ever worry about what you're going to wear. And then at the very end, so don't be ever anxious about tomorrow. And I love the way one scholar translates it. He says, you can quit worrying about your life, about what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will drink. He is speaking, Jesus, that is, is speaking to our deep fears within our heart. You've chosen to serve God and not money, and that can feel scary. But instead of putting our trust in our savings and our assets, insurance for a rainy day, we are putting our ultimate trust in him, in the goodness of God. And Jesus knows our hearts are tempted to go back to that old way, what we once knew, because it makes us feel safe, it's familiar. But people who have committed themselves to the way of Jesus can live carefree, trusting their heavenly Father will provide all that they need to live. Worry is what we get when we place our sense of security and satisfaction in our money and our possessions. Greed, ser the, you know, serving money, making it our master, storing up possessions on earth for security or satisfaction, it actually, in a Christian, reveals this double-heartedness, a double-mindedness. We're split between the now and our imagined future need. And Jonathan Pennington, he, he notes that this, what this double-mindedness leads to. He says, when people seek to keep everything together and provide for themselves apart from God, the result is not the sought-after peace, but rather anxiety. Greed causes anxiety. It's not the only cause, but it certainly causes anxiety. The outcome of living this way is not more peace, not a greater sense of security. The outcome is anxiety, frustration, and worry. And so we do live with worry when we do this. We worry about not having enough money for that rainy day, for retirement, to buy a home, to pay for rent or a mortgage, for a vacation, for a car payment, or whatever else it might be. We worry 
about the stuff we currently have, that it's secure. We worry about the stuff we don't just have yet. And we worry about not having enough in the future. And this anxious worry is the opposite of the flourishing that Jesus invites his followers to experience and live in. So Jesus invites his, his followers into a better way of living and being. People who've committed themselves to the way of Jesus, to Jesus and his way, they can live carefree, trusting their Heavenly Father will really provide all that they need to live. And Jesus knows that we struggle to believe him with this. So he uses these two illustrations from creation that reveal the Father's caring character. He points to God's care and provision for birds and then flowers. And I think we need to hear this today because you might be tempted to believe that God cares about your spiritual needs, but not your physical or material needs. God will forgive my sins. He'll save me. He's given me Jesus, but he's not concerned about my clothes, my food, paying for rent or any of those things. And this really is this Gnostic kind of belief that elevates the spiritual over the physical, over the material. And that's a false way of thinking. That's not actually biblical. It's not Christian. That's not what you and I are called to believe. God, our Father, is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he is active and interested and able to deliver our physical needs in this world that he created. And so let's look at these two examples. The first one talks about, the, look at the birds of the air. Birds are not lazy creatures. They're very busy creatures, flying and fluttering about, but they don't sow. They don't reap or gather. They don't store up their food. The problem here is not about working for food or clothes or needs. It's worrying and obsessing about having enough for today and tomorrow. Birds don't live like that, he says. See, God oversees the entire creation process, the whole natural order, and he provides for them. He feeds them. And you count more than birds. Really basic, but it's true. You count more than birds. And then in between this illustration, he'll say, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? See, worry won't help you live longer. It will not improve the quality of your life. It just makes work a lot harder. It makes life a lot harder. Corey Tenboom, she says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Man, how many of us have like lived through that? We're like working on a project or we've got the situation and our worries just make, exhaust us and we got to go and do that task that we needed to do. We don't have nothing because worry has just sapped all the energy, all the strength. You don't have to live like that, Jesus says. You can give up worrying. The second image he uses is flowers. Consider the lilies of the field. They grow, but they don't do very much. Spinning or toiling, their beauty and adorning was far more glorious, though, Jesus says, than that of King Solomon's clothes during the peak of his reign. Solomon's reign at this time was viewed as a time of abundance of prosperity and ornate beauty and wealth. And Jesus is saying these flowers that no one really pays attention to, that come and go, have been dressed by God in a beauty greater than that entire era. Eugene Peterson will say, if God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? 
God will attend to you, take pride in you, and do his best for you. And yet one of the reasons why we might struggle to believe this is because we grew up in unstable homes. Maybe with one parent around or only one person providing for the needs of many mouths. And so the notion of God providing actually just feels really difficult. One of the things we need to understand about what Jesus is speaking to is he is not speaking to an audience living in famine. This is not Jesus being completely insensitive and saying, hey, you're going through famine. Do not worry about what you're going to eat. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to an audience who, had, who maybe were not the wealthiest but did have access to support and help. And he wants to invite his people to trust that God can take care and use others to take care of those needs as well. But here, maybe you hear this and it just feels like really difficult to square this notion of God providing, being a good father with your own lived experience. So instead of confidence, even now if you've got a great job, you might feel this nagging sense of insecurity. You've experienced how easy it is to lose it all. And you don't want to experience that again. Trusting that God provides feels harder to believe in that context. That's totally understandable. You've inhabited a completely different experience. Each of us will face different obstacles to overcome in trusting Jesus because of our personalities, our families of origin, our past failures, our own fears. Jesus is inviting you to live, though, in a new reality made possible through him. Another reason why we might struggle to believe this, though, is just because we feel like we haven't really seen examples of someone living carefree with everything that they have, and they're not worried. So we, we can't even imagine what that's like. But I think we do. We just don't always notice it. Because you know who live carefree? Little children. Little children live carefree. They are not concerned about where they'll sleep. They can sleep right here if they wanted. They are not concerned about what they'll eat, what they'll wear. Now, maybe you say if they're picky, yeah, but that's different. That's different. They aren't trying to overthink it. They live in this complete dependence and confidence over what their parents will take, that their parents will take care of them. And Lindsay and I live through this. Isaiah and Evan are not worried about these things. They don't even question it. It is all that they've known. They trust and receive what they need. And because of that, they're free to focus on other things because they're not thinking about that. They're free to focus on relationship with me, with Linz, with each other, with their friends. Their concerns are oriented more around play, exploring, learning, and relating to others than on whether they'll have enough. And that is the concern that Jesus wants us to experience with our Heavenly Father. And so the, Jesus will go on to say the solution to our worries about not having enough money or stuff or whatever it may be for today and in the future is not to store up more stuff. And it's also not just to stop worrying. Like, don't think about it. That's there. It's coming. Just don't think about it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is to set your heart on God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Redirect your energy, your attention, those concerns away from these things and to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But maybe you hear that and you're like, I don't even know what that means. Righteousness, the kingdom of God. So let's just unpack that a little bit. What do these things mean? Let's look at the first one, the kingdom of God. 
Really simply, the kingdom of God is about the rule of God on earth. It's about the reign of God. For God's people, the kingdom of God was much bigger than that, but that was like, that's like that in, in a nutshell. The kingdom of God was central to this whole story of the Bible. The kingdom of God marked the end of history. The kingdom of God was what God's faithful people hoped for at the end. It represented a future where God would be all in all. When God's kingdom arrived, there would be this great reversal of everything that was wrong in our world and in the universe. So, it would start with God dynamically ruling as king over the whole earth. And God would judge, disarm, and defeat the forces of evil. God would permanently deal with our sin, setting us free from our slavery to it. God would undo the effects of death. Everything that marred and destroyed God's good creation would be undone. This is a great reversal, really a great restoration. And when Jesus comes and begins his ministry, he ties it to the coming of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He's essentially saying the story that God has been writing since the very first pages of Genesis are now realized in me. Everything that the law and the prophets pointed to were all about me. In me, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the Sermon on the Mount, this, what we're looking at here, is it is all about living in light of the kingdom that has come through him. And the Beatitudes really start and finish with this statement about the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to list a number of other Beatitudes, and he ends. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then when Jesus teaches his people to pray, he says, when you pray, pray then like this. And one of the things he says right in the middle, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Following the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to demonstrate signs of the kingdom, what it looks like. He's talked about it, now he's going to show us. And so you'll see in the Gospel of Matthew, following the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to demonstrate undoing the effects of evil, defeating evil, setting people free, Those who are hungry are fed, the sick are healed, blind are given sight. Those who are unable to speak have the ability to speak. Those who cannot hear are able to hear. People are healed and set free. Those who were once rejected get welcomed back into community. This kingdom comes in Jesus. It's inaugurated. It's launched in Jesus. But it's not fully visible, and that's what you see as well. Not everybody recognizes it. Not everybody embraces it. But it does mean one thing for us, that you can live in this kingdom now, that you can experience what the kingdom of God is like. You can dwell under the good, just, and restorative reign of God now through Jesus. Now, what does righteousness mean? Righteousness doesn't mean the ethical quality of a person. This is Rudolf Bultmann. He says, it doesn't mean the ethical quality of a person. It doesn't mean any quality at all, but a relationship. That is, righteousness is not something a person has as his own. Rather, it is something he has in the verdict of the forum to which he's accountable. What he's getting at is righteousness is all about relationship. It's not about quality. It's, about, it's not about abiding by a set of laws. It is about living in faithfulness to the terms of a relationship. 
like a spouse who lives up to the terms of their marriage covenant, like a citizen who lives up to the expectation of the civil order. That's a righteous person. My son Evan gets this. He's at a stage where he's really sensitive when he or others are wronged. He feels it. And even though he doesn't have all the words to articulate it, he wants to be rightly related to me, to Lindsay, to Isaiah. And when we're not, he articulates it. And it sounds really cute, but what he, he'll say, like, like, you mad at me? Like, I don't like you do that. And he'll, he'll communicate that something's off, and he wants it to be reconciled, that he wants things to be put right. When he recognizes he does something, he's like, I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry I do that. He has this concern to be rightly related. He has this hunger to make things right by apologizing or calling you out when you don't, uh, when you don't actually treat him right. He has this hunger and thirst to be rightly related. And righteousness can refer to many different relationships in this way. And, but when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about being in right relationship, rightly related. But if you notice, Jesus says, seek first his righteousness, speaking of God's righteousness. And when the Bible speaks about God's righteousness, it's referring to, I would, I would highlight three things. It's referring to God's saving acts in history. God's saving acts are how God established and confirmed his relationship to his people. There's this one scholar, Gerhard von Rad, he notes that from the earliest times onwards, Israel celebrated Yahweh as the one who bestowed on his people all the all-embracing gift of his righteousness. And this righteousness bestowed on Israel is always a saving gift, he says. For Israel, this was the exodus. God freeing them from slavery in Egypt, and then God saves us through Jesus now. Through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection. These are his saving acts of righteousness. And this leads to the second point. We're accepted by God. In Isaiah 54 Verses 10, 14, and 17 reads, But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. In righteousness you shall be established. This is the heritage of the Lord and their vindication from me, says the Lord. In this relationship, we don't actually contribute anything in order for it to be established. We have nothing but a great need. And I think that's because he wants us to know who he is. He's one who provides, who takes care, who rescues. He sees our need. And the Sermon on the Mount is this explanation of, of what it means to be in right relationship with God first, and then others. This is what it looks like to be rightly related to me, your God. You have this whole new way of relating and living. And the third, righteousness also refers to a response in light of what he has done for us. Our response to God's righteousness is that of joy and gratitude and a desire to live in right relationship with him, to live in a way that pleases him. Our response to God's salvation and acceptance flows out in at least four ways that would be characterized as being rightly related to God, to others, to ourselves, and to creation. Seek first my kingdom and, his righteous, and my righteousness, his righteousness. This is what Jesus says he wants us to direct our energy towards. Instead of worrying 
Direct your energy here, your concern here. And if Jesus says this, how are we to do this? It doesn't seem all that uh, easy, but how would we do it? I just want to highlight four things I think we can try. First is I think we daily commit to seeking Jesus. The starting point for all of this is Jesus Christ. He's the culmination of the story of God, the story of Israel, and the story of humanity. You enter the kingdom through Jesus. You experience the good, restorative, life-giving rule of God through him. Hence, Jesus, when he comes and announces that the kingdom of God has come near, he calls people to repent, to believe in the goodness of the kingdom of God. And then later on, he will call his people to be baptized, to identify with him. Turn around. You were walking in the wrong direction. Turn towards me. Believe. I am who I say I am, that I am bringing the kingdom of God, and identify with me in my life, death, and resurrection. You're rightly related to God when you live in response to Jesus' Jesus' saving act on the cross. Living rightly related to God, others, and yourself, and creation only becomes possible through Jesus. He is how you become rightly related to others. So these two things, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, they are rooted in the person of Jesus. You must respond to him. Seek him out daily. This is why Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By putting the kingdom and righteousness together, Jesus is highlighting that there are not these separate things to be sought out, but one thing, namely himself. Seek him. Know him. He is the goal. He is the treasure. Second thing, I think we entrust our needs, your needs, both present and future, to, and those of our world, to our Heavenly Father, the creator and sustainer of all life. Entrust your needs, our community's needs, the, the needs of our planet, and bring them to your Father in Heaven. Who cares? Jesus actually will tell us, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And when you read in Matthew 6, you'll see that he actually says this a number of times, for your Father knows what you need. Your Father knows that you need them all. Your Father knows what you need before you even say it. But seek first. Trust Him in all the areas. Trusting Him in all areas of your life is central to being rightly related to Him. This is why we'll read that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, of being rightly related, will be filled. They'll be satisfied. Their deep hungers and thirst will be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst to be rightly related to God are blessed because the kingdom of God belongs to them. Lindsay and I have had to learn and relearn this one over and over and over again, and probably you do too. One of the areas where we we seem to always have to relearn this is with every home and place that we move into. Every home we've lived into since getting married has been an exercise of trust in the Lord's provision. We believed in being in the neighborhood where, we are, where our church is, of committing to that area, praying for that area, loving that area, being close. And, we pray, and so when we've had to move, we've prayed for the neighborhood that we wanted to be in, with a budget in mind, with a number of rooms. And I'll be honest, there's been moments I've just thought the prayers that I've prayed are ridiculous, so I maybe only pray them once because I just feel so outlandish praying them. And it's usually because of the market 
and how the, you know, the market is at this time. And it just makes you feel like, man, like, how can you ever get anything there? And surprisingly, each time God has made a way. And it's been him showing and graciously reminding us that he will provide what we need to do. He will provide what we need in order to do the things he calls us to do. He knows what we need before we even ask. But we are invited to entrust to him those things. We are not to carry them. You can stop worrying. Third, we dwell in the confidence that the kingdom of heaven is invading earth. That future is really spilling into the present. And that because of that, God promises to bless those who dwell in his kingdom. I think what's central here is that we actually need to live and spend time in Scripture. Learn the story of God in Scripture so that you can know your part and inhabit it. It cannot just be that you spend Sunday morning in Scripture. You need to spend time in it. You need to learn the story so that you can know your part that you are to play. When you trust Jesus, he begins to reveal to you and invites you into this reality that God really does provide, that he really does love you. That he knows what you need. Jesus makes the Father's generous and self-giving heart known. And he gives us access to the Father's heart and care. And from that place, he begins to change our hearts. From hearts that are worried to hearts that are at peace. He enables our perspective to change. You can live in a new story that heaven really is invading earth. Despite all the things you'll hear in the news, that God is restoring creation, including you, through Jesus Christ, that God has saved you and accepted you through Jesus Christ. You can live in this new script. I don't have to worry. I can live carefree because my heavenly Father knows my every need. As I set my heart on his rule and living rightly related to him, he'll take care of the other stuff. I can trust him. Finally, fourth, embrace the mission of God in your life. He has a mission for each one of us, and it actually looks really different depending on who we are, our families of origin, our jobs, our giftings and talents. But in all those circumstances, we are called to make him known, to be his witness in our roles as friends, daughters, sons, wives, husbands, single, fathers, mothers, neighbors, co-workers, accountants, artists, engineers, entrepreneurs, professors, Live making decisions that Jesus would make if he were living your life in, your, in all those different places. Be a mini Christ in those spheres of influence in which he has placed you. And this doesn't mean you have to be annoying and talk about Jesus and try to slip it into every single sentence. That's not what this means. But it does mean that through your character, through your conduct, and yes, through your words, you make him known. Through the way you serve people, forgive people, give to people. Through your concern for the marginalized, your concern for the truth, concern for reconciliation, concern for welcoming newcomers to our city, for hospitality, inviting others to come and know him, to encounter him. All of these are ways you make him known. And here's why we need to do this. See, obsessing and worrying over all of these things are a sign that you're living like Gentiles, that's what Jesus says, which is really him saying you're living as if you don't believe in who God is and how he works. That is what worry reveals. 
Your, wor- your worries are a sign you've stopped living in the story of God and what he is doing. You're inhabiting the wrong story. Reject that story and that script that comes with it. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He paraphrases Jesus' words in the message, and he says, what I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know, you bo- you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. This is what Jesus wants for us. Jesus is forming these people who are generous with all that they have and carefree because they trust in their heavenly Father for all they need. And that's what you and I are invited into. So, Father, we come and we ask that the different things that we have been worried about even just this week or this morning, that you would lead us through them. And as we come to you now in communion, we ask your spirit would make us aware and that you would do your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to partake in communion. If you identify as a follower of Jesus, we invite